This evening we'll be in 2 Samuel chapter 9, so you do well to follow along in your Bible to make sure that what I have to say is true. 2 Samuel chapter 9. David has been dealing with opposition from inside and from outside. Inside, his army commander, Joab, is uh, trying to protect him and he actually murdered the army commander of Ishbosheth, Abner. And so he's dealing with all that internal strife inside, you could say, the nation of Israel. And then he's following that, he's dealing with opposition from the outside. In chapter 8, we saw him secure the borders um, to uh, fight against the Philistines and the Ammonites and uh, the Amalekites and uh, the Syrians and so on. And yet, despite all that opposition, David was decisively victorious. He had much success from within his own administration and also in, in guarding those who were trying to attack their territory. He had much military success, financial success. And despite all that, he did not use his success as a way to advance his own position primarily, his own house. Instead, in fact, look at chapter 8, verse 15. He used his, his success in order to serve the people. In verse 15, it says that David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and righteousness. So, David first seeks to build a house for God. He's thinking not of himself, but of God. And God humbles him and says, you can't make plans for me. I'm the one who makes plans for you. I'm going to build a house for you. And so after that, he decides, you know what? I'm going to use my resources, my success, to serve the people with justice and righteousness. And that's really a summary of David's ministry to the people. And now it's going to be demonstrated here in chapter 9 in his treatment of Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. So let's look at the text together, beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. Then David said, Is there not yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, in Lodibar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, from Lodibar. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, Here is your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan, and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. Again he prostrated himself and said, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him, and shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands, his servant, so your servant will do. 
So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table regularly. Now he was lame in both feet. David has learned something from the mercy that he has been shown by his heavenly Father. And that is that if David's going to follow after his father, then he needs to be merciful as his heavenly Father is merciful. And that's really, I think, the theme of this text. Be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. Words from our Lord that would come later in the Gospels, but something that applied to David way back in in the 1500s B.C. Or the 1000s B.C., excuse me. Be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. In this text we see two main two main ideas. First, a promise fulfilled, and secondly, a motivated mercy. David is going to fulfill a promise that he had made several years earlier. And then we're going to see the reason why he shows that mercy. And I'm going to argue that it's because he understands the mercy that's been shown to him. First, a promise fulfilled in verses 1 through 4. The expression of that uh, of the, this covenant, this promise, goes all the way back to 1 Samuel uh, 21, which we're going to, to see in just a minute. But here we see what it looks like when he follows through on his promise. David wants to show kindness to Saul's house for the sake of Jonathan, and so two times he asks in the text, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? And he repeats that same idea in verse 3. And the repetition, you know, the author could have just said that one time and then moved on, but instead he repeats it in order to emphasize that this is important. Why would David want to show kindness to someone in Saul's house? I mean, is David at a time in his life as king where he's lonely, needing a friend? Maybe he missed his close friend Jonathan. Notice the word there in verse 1 and verse 3, kindness. That word kindness is probably not the most helpful translation in the New American Standard. It comes from the Hebrew word, which is usually translated as loving kindness. It's usually translated as something that God does for us, that He shows to us His loving kindness, or as I've uh, described it before, as His loyal love, His covenant faithfulness. That's what that is. Usually it's God and Israel. I'm going to show my loving kindness. My loving kindness is better than life. That's the idea here. David's saying, I'm showing my covenant faithfulness to you, to the house of Saul. I'm showing my loyal love for the sake of your father, Jonathan. That's what he's going to say in verse 7. And the recipient of this covenant faithfulness is Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, as we see in verses 2 and 4. And so David sends for, in order to find this out, he first needs to send for Saul's servant. Apparently, now that Saul's dead, Jonathan's dead, Saul's servant Ziba is still caring for Saul's estate. He's taking care of all of his land and his resources. And so David sends for him. And this servant Ziba tells David that there is one person left in the house of Saul. One person remaining. We, we aren't introduced to him by name, 
really, until we get to uh, verse 6. But we know that there's a son left, the grandson of Saul, a son of Jonathan. And we were already introduced to him in chapter 4, verse 4. Let's turn back there and see. But even at that time, what you're going to notice here is is that he's it's just kind of a, a blip on the screen. It's it's not not very important. It's not a very important role. It's kind of just a, a background story. We don't learn much about him here, except for how he became lame in his feet. Verse four says, "Now Jonathan Saul's son had a son crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. In other words, the report of their death." in battle. And his nurse took him up, took Mephibosheth up and fled. And it happened that in her hurry to flee that he fell and he became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So now you can turn back to chapter 9. Here in chapter 9, much time has passed. How old was he when he became lame? How old was he when Jonathan and Saul died? What did it say in chapter 4? He's five years old. And yet, if we look down in um, in verse 12 of our chapter, it says Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. So, if he has a young son that's probably about the age that he was when he became crippled, then he's probably... Um, we, there's probably been a number of years that have passed, maybe 20 or 25 years, who knows. Whatever the case, David sends for him. Mephibosheth is living in his grandfather's area, probably just trying to stay low-key in this Gilead region. The, uh, really a, um, a farming community. This land called Lodibar. It's east of the Jordan River, about 10 miles south of, of the Sea of Galilee. And they, they call for Mephibosheth and they have him come before the king. David wants to express... He wants to follow through on a covenant that he had made to Mephibosheth's father and grandfather. So in order for us to see this, I think it would be helpful for us to go back and see when he established this covenant. When did David make a promise that he would care for the house of Saul? Because when we look at this story here in chapter 9, we might think that David is just bored or that he's uncommonly concerned for the well-being of the disabled. But that's not the point of the story. You know, we might come away with this, well, we need to care better for the disabled. That's not the point of 2 Samuel 9. I think there's a twofold focus. First, a promise fulfilled, as we're looking at now, and then a motivated mercy. But this promise fulfilled really is grounded in, it's rooted in the motivated mercy. I'm going to try to show you that from the text and from the rest of Scripture. But, but in order to see this promise, go back to chapter 20 of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 20. Jonathan here is speaking to David and he calls for David to make a covenant. 1 Samuel 20, verse 14 says, If I am still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness? Did you notice that word there? That's the same Hebrew word that we have in our text. What, what, who's left of the house of Saul to whom I can show loving kindness? The same word. Same root word in the Hebrew. <clears throat> that I may not die. Then verse 15, You shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. 
So Jonathan says, listen, if I die, would you continue to show loving kindness to me? And David agrees to that covenant in verse 17. They make this vow together and they loved each other as they loved their own lives. The main line that that we should keep in mind here is this one here in verse 15, which is really the, the, the core of the covenant. You shall not cut off your covenant loyalty, your, your loyal love, your covenant faithfulness to me, your, your loving kindness from my house forever. And then notice the last phrase there, verse 15, because this is interesting. Not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So David, when all of your enemies are laying at your feet and you have nothing left to conquer, then still continue to show favor to my family, even when that's the case? The reason I think that's important is because that's essentially what time period David is in when he's making this covenant. Right? He's he's had all of his enemies lay at his feet. His borders are secure. His land is secure. And now he's saying, how can I go back and follow through on this covenant now that all of my enemies are are destroyed effectively. We never hear of the Philistines again. So there's the initial promise. They enter into this covenant. Another expression of the promise is seen in chapter 23. So turn over there, chapter 23, verse 17. David is hiding from Saul and Jonathan sneaks away in order to have a meeting with David. And David here reassures Jonathan what he had promised back in chapter 20. Chapter 23, verse 17 Thus he said to him, Do not be afraid, because the hand of Saul my father will not find you, and you will be king over Israel, and I will be next to you. And Saul my father knows that also. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed at Horish while Jonathan went to his house. So this is really uh, the two of them renewing the covenant that they had already made. And, And then turn over to chapter 24, because David did not just make this promise to Jonathan. Chapter 24, verse 20. This is when Saul's going after him and, and David escapes. And he, he um, this was the time when he was in the, in the cave and he could have killed Saul. He, instead, he just cut off his cloak. And then he gets distance away and calls to Saul and said, look, look, I did not kill you. Notice what he says to Saul here. Jonathan's apparently nowhere to be found. He may be in the background of the story, but he's not mentioned in the text. But he's talking to Saul and David says, Now behold, I know that you will surely... Uh, this is Saul talking. Now behold, I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. So now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's household. And then verse 22, David swore to Saul. In other words, he promised to Saul that he would follow through on this commitment. So now what's happening, happening you can turn back to Second Samuel 9, is that in 2 Samuel 9, David is following through on what he had promised to Jonathan and to Saul by covenant. And he's saying, I will not allow your family to be destroyed. And I think this promise, this covenant, is rooted in a motivated mercy. And the reason I say motivated mercy is because it's motivated in what, what God has done for David. 
In verses 5 through 7, we see this initial act of mercy. Initial act of mercy. Mephibosheth is brought before David in verses 5 and 6. I mean, what must he have been thinking as he is brought before the king? What is he going to do to me? The reason I think that is because of verse 7. David said to him, do not fear. If he said that, then apparently Mephibosheth is, is very fearful. He falls down on his face prostrate before David. I mean, certainly Mephibosheth had read the newspapers over the last couple of years and had known that his uncle Ishbosheth was competing for rule in the northern kingdom of Israel. And he probably also had heard that Ishbosheth's army commander, Abner, had tried to gain strength in the the um, under the rule of David, and instead of gaining strength, he actually was killed by David's lead commander, or head commander. Mephibosheth knows all these things. In other words, Mephibosheth knows that while his grandfather was alive, there was a war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And now that his grandfather has died, there's still this battle, this conflict, this tension between the house of Saul and the house of David. And Mephibosheth, being from the house of Saul, is coming before the house of David. And what must he be thinking? And yet David wants to calm his fears. He says, do not fear, verse 7. I will show you kindness for the sake of your father. There's that word again. I will show you loyal love. I will show you covenant faithfulness. Now this is important for us to understand because the secular pattern of kings was to destroy anything or anyone who was a threat to his throne. Anyone who tried to overthrow or even who was a potential heir to the throne. The next in line. The family was often killed after the, the king had died. The next one in line would kill the rest of the family so that none of them could take the throne away from him. And this is why I think Saul was so concerned in 1 Samuel 24 that we saw earlier. He's saying, when I die, don't destroy my family. Because here's, the, here's what you might think as king. Saul says, I know you're going to be king, but here's what you might think. You might think that my family is going to be a rivalry to you, and they're not. So please don't harm them. Saul knew that the probable thing for the new king was to destroy all the threats to the throne. And so for David to keep Mephibosheth alive, this is a vulnerable move on his part. Because there may be pockets of people who still want to follow the house of Saul. And we have someone that's still from the house of Saul alive. And if David allows him to live then David's putting his own throne at risk. But see, David was not operating for his own purposes. David was not trusting in his own ingenuity. He was trusting in God and working to serve the people. Do what was best for justice and righteousness, not for advancing his own throne or protecting his own backside. So he says there in verse 7, I will surely show you Loving kindness, hesed, loyal love. Now, it's amazing. The promise that David made was that he would keep them alive. That's all that Jonathan asked. That's all that Saul asked. Don't 
kill them, spare their lives. And David could have just done that by sending them away or putting them in putting Mephibosheth in prison or something. You're not going to have any free reign. But instead, what we have is this abundance of mercy that David shows to him. David pours out so much more than what he had promised. So I promised to keep you alive, but here's what I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you much more than that. Notice the promise, the abundance of blessing in verses 7 through 13. The abundance of blessing. There's these three blessings that we see in the text. First, the restored estate of Saul. The restored estate of Saul. Now, this doesn't mean restored power, estate, talking about the land that Saul had owned. That goes back to Saul. That goes back to Saul's family. That goes back to Mephibosheth. You see that in the second part of verse 7. So I'm going to show kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather. And then verse 9, Then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. What does this do for Mephibosheth, who is kind of uh, moving his way as time starts to go? He's starting to move his way towards the peripheral of importance in society. Right? It's, it's, it's like a person who, who is the son of a king or a president and the president is no longer in power and so that person doesn't have as much importance. They're not as much in the limelight anymore as they once were. That's Mephibosheth. And so now he gains back this territory that once was lost and he earns for himself, really a, a, doesn't earn for, he receives by mercy from the hand of David, basically guaranteed income. You know, you have this land that now belongs to you that's going to provide produce and, and agriculture. It's going to give you sustenance for the rest of your life. But that wasn't the only blessing that he received. The second blessing that we see is at the end of verse 7, and that is regular dinner with the king. So first, restore the state of Saul, and then second, regular dinner with the king. At the end of verse 7, it says, And you shall eat at my table. At the end of verse 10, it says, um, uh, it's not verse 10, end of verse 11, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons, so he's treated like royalty, even though he's no longer part of the dynasty, the Saul's dynasty, so to speak, is just one king, but Saul's dynasty is over. And now he's entering back in and, and, and uh, being able to join at the table of the king. And then verse 13, So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. Apparently he lived nearby so that he could eat at the king's table regularly. And in case you think this is not a big deal to eat with the king, imagine if the president or the governor of Michigan were to give you land near the capital and then tell you that they, they wanted you to join them just as they, they want their family to join them for dinner. Whenever and I'm in town, you, you join me for dinner. And that's what David's saying to lowly Mephibosheth. So first, restore to state. Second, regular dinner. And third, Saul's servants are given to him. Saul's servants now belong to Mephibosheth. Verse 10, you and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him and you shall bring in the produce. So he's talking to Saul's servant. He's saying, now you, you, you've changed loyalties effectively. You were working for the estate of Saul. Now you're working for Mephibosheth. 
all of your sons, all of your family, and all of your servants, they now belong to Mephibosheth. He's your boss now. At the end of verse 12, all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. So David's act of mercy here goes beyond what he had promised, didn't it? It's not just, I'm going to keep you alive. No, I'm going to restore your dignity. I'm going to restore your honor. I'm going to treat you like royalty. I'm going to pull you out of obscurity and disgrace. I mean, think about it from the, the, the perspective of Mephibosheth. He probably never remembered a time or very little, very, remembered very little the time when his grandfather was king. He was only five years old when his grandfather died. And now he's sitting at the table of the king, of the king who replaced Saul, of the king who was, um, was in conflict with his grandfather Saul. And now Mephibosheth is honored like the son of a king. Does that sound anything like what, what God did for us? Does that sound anything like the mercy that we've been shown? We once were in the house of the enemy. We were the enemy to the king. And now we sit at his table. Mephibosheth's response to the king is found in verse 8. Again, he prostrated himself and said, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Notice that he's not grow up with a sense of entitlement. You know, I, wait a second, I'm the grandson of the former king. I deserve all these things. Instead, he recognizes his great desperation. You know, I'm from the family who opposed David. Instead of being entice, feeling entitled, he is actually shocked at David's mercy. And he responds with humility. He falls down on his face again and says, Who am I? What kind of dead dog am I? Any value in a dead dog? You know, especially in those days, they were, they were not house pets. Okay, so it's like any value in a, in a dead, wild animal. And the point is, is, I am nothing before you. Mephibosheth recognized. In fact, he uses very similar words to what David used to, to talk to God when God showed David mercy. He calls himself in verse 8, your servant. can't even say me or I like David can't say in his prayer, remember, in chapter 7. Instead, he says, your servant. So let's trace these acts of mercy that David has shown. See where it is sourced. First, I would suggest that David's mercy to Mephibosheth was based on his commitment to his covenant. David's act of mercy was based on his commitment to his covenant. And I think that the main focus of this text is that David is merciful to someone who is undeserving. Saul's grandson. And yet, David acts with mercy towards Saul's grandson because of his promise. How easy would it have been for David to justify his situation saying, you know what, I know what I said to them about protecting their family line and all that. 
but you know, it's, it's just too dangerous. I can't follow through on this promise. Mephibosheth and his servants could overthrow me as king, and I have too much to accomplish. Here's the spiritual part. You know, I have too much to accomplish for the work of God. So I can't leave him alive. I mean, who's, who's going to fault him for having that kind of reasoning? And yet David is a man of integrity, isn't he? He said, I made a covenant, and I'm going to follow through with it. And I'm going to do it because I'm going to be merciful because of this covenant. So this act of mercy to Mephibosheth is based on David's covenant. And then secondly, let's trace it back a little bit farther. His covenant was based on mercy. Now we're going back in time. Why did he make the covenant in the first place? He didn't know he was going to have to do it in this way. He didn't know Mephibosheth was going to be crippled and living alone or whatever. Why did he make the covenant in the first place? I mean, did he have to enter into a covenant with Jonathan? He could have said, you know, Jonathan, I understand your concern for your family line, but, but I've been mistreated by your father and I'm not going to promise to care for your family because your father has been so evil to me and I have every right to reject your covenant. But why would David enter into this covenant in the first place? Why would David enter into this covenant and then later on follow through with an act of mercy? And I think the answer is, when we trace it back a little further, David's mercy to Mephibosheth is based on David's covenant. David's covenant is based on an act of mercy. He chose to do it because he was simply being merciful to Jonathan and his family even though they didn't deserve it. And and the reason for that is because David's mercy was sourced in God's mercy. David's initial mercy to Jonathan in making the covenant and his and his later his his present mercy that we're looking at in the text his his former mercy and his present mercy are both sourced in God's mercy. And David recognized something that we cannot forget as believers, that we have bathed in, the, in an ocean of God's mercy our whole lives. I mean, for David, he had been delivered from vicious animals as a young boy, from a godless giant, and then later on from a power-hungry king. And over and over again, God had been merciful to David, and David saw that God was at work. And when David recognized that he was undeserving in receiving God's mercy, he gladly dispensed mercy to others who were undeserving. And what David recognized is that, you know, God had been faithful to him all these years, loyally loving. God had been merciful to David all these years, but God's mercy did not stop when Saul died. God's mercy to David continued We saw in chapter 7 that God was abundantly merciful, not only in caring for David up until this point, but also promising future grace. I'm going to care for your house, your family line. It's all in my plan that your dynasty will continue forever. And when David realized it, again, I think the key is the end of chapter 7, when he recognizes what God has done, He stops making plans for God and starts submitting himself to God and falling before him saying, Who am I, a dead dog, that you would even think of me? 
when we recognize that, who we are in light of God, then we can show mercy to people who are undeserving, who look like dead dogs to us. I think David's lavish mercy towards Mephibosheth and earlier towards the family of Saul was sourced in or motivated by God's mercy. Let's see if we can trace it back a little bit farther. Where does God's mercy come from? And I would suggest to you that based on the whole of Scripture, that God's mercy is based on His choice. We know from Scripture that God's mercy is not based on our works or any goodness in us. I mean, think about it. Who shows mercy to rivals? Who shows mercy to enemies? And what Romans 8 says that God will show mercy... Uh, chapter 9, excuse me. God will show mercy on whom He will show mercy and He will show compassion on whom He will show com- compassion. And the fact that God would show mercy to those who are opposed to Him tells us a lot about God's love and grace. It tells us that He gives mercy to those, to each of us, who are undeserving. And that should motivate us to show mercy to others who are, in our view, undeserving as well. Listen to Jesus to see how these play together. As we recognize our humble condition in light of God, the mercy we've received, even though undeserving, we are happy to dispense mercy to others. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 10.8. You received without paying, therefore give without pay. Luke 6.36, what I think is the theme of this text, be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. Let's look at that because I think it would be helpful. Luke 6. I'd like you to see the context here. You might just take that phrase and, okay, be merciful as your Father's merciful. But I want you to see the context of this because it helps us to see what kind of attitude we ought to have it's not a points-based system that we ought to be working on. You know, if they do good for me, then I'll happily do good for them. But rather, it's based on a choice. We're simply going to be merciful because God has been merciful to us. Look at chapter 6, verse 32. 31 says, Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. Verse 32, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. I mean, as far as a points-based system of love, even unbelievers do that. So don't pat yourself on the back when you're loving someone that's already shown you love. Verse 33, If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. Verse 35, But love your enemies, do good, lend, expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. You see, And then be merciful just as your Father is merciful. So do you see that last line in verse 35? For He Himself is kind. Here's the motivation. God is kind to us who are ungrateful and evil, and so we can give to those who don't, who don't deserve it. Those who aren't loving in return. Those who, who when we lend to them, we may not, never get the money back. We can do that. Because God's done the same to us. 
And sadly, I think we have bought into the mentality of our world where we, we work on a points-based system in how we treat people. It's the idea of, you know, what have you done for me lately? I'll gladly help you, but what have you done for me? Or I paid for his lunch two times and he hasn't paid for my lunch once, so I'm never doing that again. I complimented him on his clothes and he hasn't noticed mine. I helped him do work in his house. He hasn't helped me once. Or, you know, my sibling. I call him every week and he never calls me. I mean, this is a points-based system that, that is so prominent in our world, isn't it? Listen to these words from Eminem. Okay? I don't listen to Eminem, but um, if I did, would you judge me? No. Kidding. Um, I found this on somebody's uh, Facebook. You know, you can put some of your favorite quotes. And this is what, they, this is what Eminem says, according to this um, Facebook. I don't care if you're black, white, short, tall, fat, skinny, rich, or poor. If you're nice to me, I'll be nice to you. Simple as that. It doesn't matter who you are, but if you're nice to me, then I can be nice to you. That's the points-based system idea. And I think if we live in those terms as Christians, we are going to be stingy with mercy, aren't we? Because our motivation for showing mercy is so that either we can receive something in return or it's the, you scratched my back, so I'm going to scratch yours now, and then that may be later than you're going to scratch my back. And that's not biblical mercy. And aren't you thankful that God is not motivated to show us mercy only because of a point, points-based system? You know, I will, I will only show mercy to these humans when they deserve it. Or I, I will only show mercy to them when they're kind to me. Aren't you thankful God doesn't think in those terms? No, God shows mercy on those of us who are undeserving, ungrateful, and even often forgetful of what He's done for us. God regularly shows mercy to me whether or not I am serving Him. And the best expression of that mercy is that while I was still a sinner, He sent Christ to die for me. Romans 5, 6 says that while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, not the godly. Verse 8 says, But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Sinners, effectively. Verse 10, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, we will be saved by His life. While we were enemies, ungodly, sinners, that's when God came to show mercy to us. And if that's how God treated us, then can we not... Be merciful to those who have wronged us? Those who have or are mistreating us? Can we not show mercy? Those who have been shown mercy, those who understand the mercy they've been shown by their Heavenly Father, will show mercy to others, particularly those who are undeserving. And when we do that, we act like our Father in Heaven. Be merciful as your Father in Heaven is merciful. Let's pray. Father, thank You for sobering us spiritually. 
It's easy for us to live life with a points-based kind of system, thinking that you respond to us because we've done something good for you. And so, kind of your obligation. But Lord, the reason that you've chosen to show mercy to us is not because of any works of righteousness which we have done, but is according to your good choice. Your mercy is sourced in your choice of us. There's nothing that you saw in us that was good. There's nothing that was righteous in, in, in us. There was none of us who were righteous, not even one. All of us turned away from you. And, that, and it was that, at that time when we were enemies, ungodly, sinners, that Christ died for us. You showed your mercy in the clearest way when you gave your Son for us. So we can never doubt how much you love us how much you care for us, how much you are committed to your promise. Keep us all the way till the end. And so, Lord, we pray that you would use these truths to help motivate us and follow the example of David here with Mephibosheth and show um, otherworldly an otherworldly kind of mercy to those who are undeserving, those who would otherwise be our enemies. And we pray that you would give us the strength to do that so we can follow your example and be conformed into the image of your Son, Jesus, whom we love. We pray in his name. Amen.